It'll be interesting to see today whether Mike DeWine in his twice-weekly briefing gives us any more indication of coming down with a hammer on what's going on with the surge. So many other states are taking taking aim now. I just It'll be interesting to see. You guys expecting any big developments today? Chris Warnowski, Laura Johnston? We'll have to see. I mean, we'll be gearing up to hear that we're in purple, so maybe there'll be more questions about that. Yeah, well, actually, I think that's later in the week. That right, but that would be Thursday, Tuesday. so maybe they'll talk more about what that means before we get anybody in it. I just want to know what college tie he's going to be wearing today. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. the only reason I tune in. Welcome to the latest episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and like I said, I'm with my colleagues, Chris Wernowski and Laura Johnston. Let's get to it. How many complaints about the lack of mask wearing is Cuyahoga County receiving now that it has set up a hotline for people to report on each other and on businesses that are in violation? I have some reservations about how the county is going about enforcing this. Of course, they're not proactively enforcing it. Police are not on on the lookout in Cleveland. Police aren't wearing masks, but they are asking people to report what they see Laura Johnston, what did they hear after they opened that hotline up Friday afternoon? So they had 500 complaints between 3 p.m. Friday and Monday morning when we asked. And most of the complaints were related to businesses or public places around Cuyahoga County. They weren't calling out one specific person. They were saying at a place people were failing to wear masks. And the county says that once a complaint is filed, they intend to contact the subject of every complaint and the uh, municipality where the violation took place and the Board of Health. I mean, that's a a lot of work. Well, Courtney Astolfi, a reporter on Cuyahoga County, just sent me the list that she received from the county. I guess it was late last night. And I frankly don't see how they're going to be able to live up to that promise. These complaints are everywhere. And it's it's mostly retail establishments, and it's pretty much every kind of them, car places, grocery stores. I mean, really, there's no, I don't see any any trend here except that there are a whole lot of people complaining that there are workers and customers not masked in retail establishments across the county. It's pretty much every municipality that has retail a lot are in uh, in Cleveland. So I'm not sure how they do that. I mean, and this is just the first few days of it. So by the end of the week, there could be thousands of these. And Cuyahoga County doesn't really have a health department stocked with thousands of people to go out and do it. Laura, have they given any indication on how they will do this? No, they really haven't given many details at all. Um, so it will be really interesting to see how they're going to to follow up. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if they get, I mean, that was three days, right? So, I mean, they could end up with thousands this week. I sent out the news about the 500 to our text message service for coronavirus. We have more than 13,000 readers and I asked if people would be willing to make complaints. A lot of people said yes. People who live outside Cuyahoga said they wish they had something similar in their counties. Okay, but let's talk about this a little bit, because the ultimate goal with this is to get people to wear masks, right? I mean, that's what that's what Mike DeWine wants. He has said it's not really a policing tool. It's a public relations tool. And is the most effective way to do that to create a line where people basically snitch on each other and and report each other, creating this bureaucracy of investigation? Or would we be better served if 
the powers that be got together and said, look, the ultimate goal is to increase the percentage of people wearing masks. What's the best way to do that? And and maybe as one of the subtectors on my my text message account suggested, it's an incentive that that the state provides some amount of money that could then be used to to let stores give small discounts to people who wear masks as they get in line. You know, Disney World opened, I guess, last week or this week, and they're only giving pictures to people on rides if they're wearing masks. That That's an incentive, right? So, so would more people be likely, more people who are not wearing masks now, be likely to do so if you gave them, you know, some half percent off their grocery bill with some of the CARES Act money that the state has been getting so that the retailers aren't losing. So it's a carrot instead of a stick. Is is this the best way or am I wrong? Is is the snitch line the best way? Let's let's get every complaint we can get on every retail establishment and send in inspectors with badges to say bad, bad, bad. I, I mean, that's a really good question. I think the, the businesses that we talked to said they don't want to have to be the enforcer of it, but now they're going to be getting calls from the county regardless of, of whether they're the enforcer or not. And they're going to be put in this position that they don't want to be in. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that they could work together. Also, I mean, I know we've had some commercials, some kind of random commercials that the state has put out about wearing masks, but there hasn't been that much of a public education campaign where I don't know. I, I think they could do more on the public education. And then maybe you wouldn't have so many people that are pushing back saying, no, I'm never going to wear a mask. Uh, I, if they right, really right. understood yeah. the science. Chris Renaski, what I'm trying to get at here is by creating this tip line, mm-hmm. you have created a source of conflict. And we already know masks are a big source of conflict politically because there are people out there that have decided it's a conservative cause and you're a sheep if you do it and all the nonsense we've heard. <laughs> so, So we already have anger and conflict over mask wearing. We've had fights and confrontations. So we, I think we've even had shootings. So is it the best policy to create more sources of conflict where I'm going to call on you, you're not wearing a mask, I'm calling the tip line, or, hey, if you wear the mask, we'll give you a half percent off your grocery bill. What, what, what do you so- think? So I like, honestly, like the idea of using CARES Act money money to give to stores to entice people to do the right thing seems a little weird. Like I can think of a billion things that CARES Act money should be spent on, but, you know, getting people to, you know, say, hey, I you should wear a mask. I I think that's weird. Um, I think the tip line does have kind of a like a a next door dot com kind of feel to it. If you if you've ever logged on to there and watched you know, neighbors argue about, you know, the placement of trash cans and stuff like that. I mean, it does get a little down into the sort of ridiculous minutia of conflict. Chris Wernowski, you've recently moved to the suburbs and it's showing, man. Yeah, right? So, um, but I think, and this is, look, I'm just speculating here. I think part of the point of this is really to sort of illustrate how, how pervasive the not, mask wearing is. And, and I think, I think at the end of the day, like enforcement has never really been the point. I think the point is to be able to create a metric that you can point to and say, see, this is, this is how bad or good or, you know, in non-compliant some businesses are. Now, what you do with that, I mean, you take that to the governor and say, look, 
we have thousands of people. We need to, you know, we need to start locking stuff down again. You know, I, 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 but you know, I, again, I think there part of this is, is giving people the illusion that somebody is in control and somebody's going to take care of it, you know, but it's, but, but it's wait, a lot wait, of smoke wait, and mirrors. I mean, I just, wait, wait, I, I don't see what, but if what you the create, is. But if you create it and I make the call and you've said you're going to deal with my call, then I, if you don't live up to that expectation, I'm going to feel like you failed. So the county is set up now a promise to deal with all of these calls all over hither and yon. I, I don't think that's physically possible. I don't think there's any way they can get to all of these things despite their promise. So does that create disillusionment even more about the mask issue? I don't know. I mean, look, they were, they were creating a fine structure and, and stuff. So, you know, if like, will I, time will tell, like it's it's like anything with the government. Like you know, it's it's a lot of bluster up front and a lot of you know a lot of ceremony up front about what you're going to be doing. But then you know you know we'll we'll see where we're at in like three months with this and 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 just you know I mean people will burn out on calling. People will just stop patronizing businesses that aren't taking it serious. You know I I think. Well, I don't know, man. I I mean, we're going long on this one. But the fact is that pretty much in every business, a large percentage of people are wearing masks and a small percentage are not. So I could go into any grocery store in Cuyahoga County and probably see that there are people not wearing masks. Right. Mm -hmm. So so I can call on legit pretty much any decent sized retail establishment. That doesn't mean that establishment's doing a bad job. It just means there is a percentage of the population that's not wearing masks. And mm-hmm. so as I, as the County goes around, that's what they're dealing with. Whatever that percentage is, they're everywhere. They go to all the same stores we go to. But so I, I think, and I don't know, and maybe the two of you can sort of answer this for me. Have you, have you gone into a place and, and seen their sort of lax enforcement of this and said, well, I'm not coming back to this store. I, no, I mean, I, we've done that. I, I wear a mask. And so I've, Feel, and I keep distant. And so I feel if I wear a mask and stay socially distant, I'm going to be okay. Um, so, I mean, I just take it for granted. There's going to be a percentage of people in the establishment that don't wear masks for whatever reason, whether it's health reasons or silly politics. But anyway, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How blistering is the latest report on Cleveland police reform, a report about the inexplicably lax discipline meted out by the just-retired public safety director, Michael McGrath. Chris Ranowski, of all the things the Monitor on police reform has published, this one is the most powerful and the most damning. What are the high points of it? So there were a couple of things that were filed yesterday with the federal judge who was overseeing the police reform effort here that started in earnest back in 2015. The, the report that that kind of stands out was one that that took a very critical and in-depth look at um, the discipline that was meted out by the now former public safety director, Michael McGrath, uh, who retired last month. And, and what they found is a few things. They, they looked at um, about 40 cases that sort of fall under the, his, that fell under his purview of, of handing out discipline. There's, there's this threshold where the police chief can take care of certain discipline, but once it crosses this line, then the public safety director has to handle it. And what they found is that 
a lot of times he was he's giving, doling out the bare minimum punishment for police officers. Um, he was doing so with almost no documentation or justification. He was entering plea agreements before official hearings and 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 basically it, it, it I mean this was this was very in depth. This was a hundred over a hundred page report that went into each of these cases pretty pretty deep and and really sort of explaining where the, they came up short in in disciplining officers who were accused of everything from drunk driving, drug use, spousal abuse, uh, civil rights violations. I mean, it, like what what was examined in this, it, it kind of runs the gamut of, of bad behavior for police. But, but a couple of big themes came out. One, they, they were really troubled by the lack of discipline, proper discipline for people who lied and were untrustworthy. And right. two, that not only was McGrath ridiculously light in his discipline he didn't justify it so he never wrote what the mitigation was that that caused him to go light and in the end the report said this completely compromises the department's ability to build credibility and accountability for its department so so the relationship with the public suffers because there's no accountability when officers go straight, I, I, as I read the, the thing, I, I was stunned by the strength of the language that the monitor used to condemn this. Yeah. And and really, when, when you talk about dishonesty, it becomes an issue of, you know, whether or not police have to sort of explain that, that they have a history of being dishonest when they testify in court against people that they arrest or in, in cases where they are involved in the investigation. And, and you know, there's a whole thread of, of, of law that deals with this. And, and one of the, the conclusions that they came to is that they have to go back now, the department should go back now and look at a lot of these rulings that McGrath made and decide whether some of these police officers have to disclose, you know, some of their, their past dishonesty when they testify in court. And that, you know, that has kind of a ripple effect throughout the prosecution process. And right. And so, they're not credible. Then right. when they testify against you, that they have no credibility. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it's, you know, he, I mean, McGrath had a very, I mean, you, you've been here a lot longer than I have and, and, and you know how long he's been here. I mean, he was here, I mean, he was with the department for almost a half a century. Right. And, let, but wait, wait, but, but let, let, let's talk about that though. Cause that, that's a very key point and you're mm -hmm. right. You weren't here starting in about 2006. We started to do work to show that Cleveland police had a, a horrible record of excessive use of force that was never, never dealt with properly. I mean, it, at one point, um, I think it was Henry Gomez and Gabe Baird, uh, the, the former reporters that we worked with at the plane dealer, they did a story that showed like a 99.9% .9 of the times the use of taser was justified. And experts say that that's a preposterous rate of justification. And, and the thing was, from that day all the way up until fairly recently, as people called for McGrath to be let go or called for his resignation through the Brelo case, the Tamir Rice case, over and over again, people called for his resignation. What Frank Jackson said was, this is the one guy I have that holds people accountable. I mean, he said it to our editorial board on multiple occasions. McGrath is the guy who holds people accountable. 
so there's you know he's the one i'm keeping yeah we got problems on the police department but he's the guy that does it and this report says not a chance no he's not no and 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 keep in mind what's what's really important to stress here is that these were disciplines that were handed down after the monitor came in so that so so this examination was of cases that he he basically he ruled on while the over like during the oversight period, like after the Justice Department came in here and did a very critical examination of these use of force things that you're talking about. And so, you know, you have to you have to wonder what everything what was going on before that. And, and we don't have to wonder. I mean, look, the the plain dealer series that, that Gabe and Henry did did ferret out a lot of problems and, and sort of set the ball rolling on this whole reform. Thing. Right. It was used was, to justify but then it was the East Cleveland chase and then Tamir Rice and Tanisha Anderson. And, and, you know, we hit a point where it, you just, it, it was kind of a breaking point, you know, 20, the late 2014, early 2015 was where, you know, the justice department finally brought that report out and it was, it was staggering. I, but it's I, not, I, it's not fixed. I mean, no. th- this shows that, it's it, it God, it may even be worse. I mean, he went light on everybody, even the Tanisha Anderson case. He didn't consider the death of somebody in custody improperly as an aggravating factor that should make the discipline worse. And the now, monitor, the monitor's report says, I can't figure out how in the world that happens. He also was doing something that we hadn't heard of before. He was making plea bargains with these yeah. guys to give them light discipline that made it almost impossible to to do more. And apparently when the monitor told Frank Jackson about that, he put some rules in that the plea bargains would have to come to him first. Although the monitor wasn't even crazy about that process. And this, this falls back to the mayor. The mayor has stood by McGrath forever saying that he was the guy that held people accountable. And I, I find it staggering really that this has been going on. Like you said, since the consent decree has been in place and Mm -hmm. nobody caught it until the monitor in this blistering report did. So we have so, some more stuff coming out of this today, right? We're publishing another, they did a full takeout on one case that was so egregious. It was just, yeah, that's up now. And, and, and one thing worth noting is, is that, and we will be writing more about this this week is that it's not all bleak there in, in the, the semi-annual report that they have to file with the, the monitor has to file with the court. They did illustrate that, that, use of force complaints continue to go down and that, that there, there are some positive things coming out of this reform effort, but I, I imagine but, but they were the going issue, down until May 30th. I think right. they went up on May 30th. Right. But this is, but the issue, but the issue here is that it, and what I think they're trying to illustrate with this report about McGrath and these punishments is that you can't really, everything else you do toward the idea of police reform cannot exist unless the the discipline process works and 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 this shows a fundamental illustration that it that there are significant problems that still exist with it and i think that's why we're seeing this now okay let's move on it's this week in the cle what's the latest debilitating symptom to be cataloged for people suffering from the coronavirus Laura Johnston, it seems like this list just is getting longer and longer. Fatigue and fever and you know, the brain hemorrhaging, strokes and all sorts of blood clots. And now we have a new one. What is it? 
delirium, um, hallucinations. Hospitals and researchers across the country suggest that as many as three quarters of COVID-19 patients of all ages in the intensive care units, the ICU, have experienced hospital delirium. This can take the form of paranoid hallucinations and agitation that's called hyperactive delirium. And some patients have internal visions that cause them to become withdrawn. And some people have both kinds. And this is a problem because it can lengthen hospital stays, increase the risk of depression or post-traumatic stress. All right, you're not going to know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is this because the there's less blood flowing to the brain, or does COVID create some kind of chemical in the system that works like a drug in the brain? And like I don't said, think you're going to have they, no idea. <laughs> I don't think they know yet, and it's it, we should point out that a lot of uh, patients in the ICU without COVID end up with hallucinations. So this is not unusual for being in the ICU. And some people, I, I did send this out on our text message account yesterday is one of the two messages they sent out. And people suggested that it might be the ventilator that's causing the problem. Because, um, you know, you can end up on a ventilator if you're in the ICU with coronavirus. So there are so many questions with this disease. I'm not going to pretend to have the answer. But you are right in that it does feel like you could attribute any sort of symptom to coronavirus. Um, we've had stories on COVID toes. You know, one of the early symptoms is losing your sense of taste or smell. And so it's really hard to say, you know, what this disease can do to your body. Yeah, we had the guy who said even months later, he's clumsy. He keeps knocking things over and he never had that issue before. So, yeah, it's a, that's a scary one, delirium. It's this week in the CLE. Did former Cleveland safety director Michael McGrath really find that the death of a woman in police custody was not an aggravating factor for the discipline of officers who broke the rules in restraining the woman? Chris Warnowski, we've talked previously about the the overarching themes of the, the police monitor's report, the guy who's monitoring the consent decree. But this case in particular is a big one because there are parallels between the death of Tanisha Anderson and the death of George Floyd. She was restrained, left on the ground, not tended to, and died. Uh, it was a, it's, it's a big case, and it took forever to discipline the officers. So what does the report have to say about this case? Right. And so like one of the reasons that this was, this was a little confusing because this, this happened back in 2014, um, but it was included in these cases because they didn't enter the disciplinary process for the police officers until after the civil case had been resolved. So this, this case was a bit of an outlier in that it was one of the earliest ones they kind of looked at be, because they were looking at a specific time frame um, um, after the, the consent decree and the federal agreement to reform the police department. So, but if, if people don't remember this case, Tanisha Anderson, um, her family said that she she had a mental illness and she was having an episode and police went to the house once that day and then they were called back and she died after they put her in cuffs and she was kind of placed in a stress position on the driveway of her fa of her family member's home um and and so what happened with that was that uh, McGrath suspended in 2018 veteran patrolman Scott Aldridge for 10 days and then gave a written reprimand to a, a guy who was a rookie police officer by the name of Brian Myers. And the, the team that, that looked at this, the, the monitoring team said that they were 
sort of perplexed that McGrath used the fact that Myers was in his first few months on the job as a reason to only issue him a reprimand instead of, of, of you know, giving him a suspension. And the quote that, that I think stuck out was that, quote, it's entirely unclear how in this case, which involved an actual in-custody death, the woman's death would not be considered to be an aggravating factor. Um, it, and it, it just, yeah, I mean, it is, it's, you know, when I remember when this happened, when they, when they, when we learned about what these officers or how these officers were punished, I just remember being blown away. I, I mean, it, 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 it just did not seem right at the time. And, and so this kind of, this kind of, I, I mean, it's, it's good to be, to, to read something and go, Oh good. I'm not, I'm not the only one who's crazy here. Well, and, you know, look, the thing is, too, this was a high profile case. This was part mm-hmm. of the trio of high profile cases. We had mm-hmm. these Cleveland police chase with all the shots. We had mm-hmm. Tamir Rice. We had Tanisha Anderson. And even though this case was under that kind of a public microscope, they still gave these guys light, light penalties. And that right. that kind of shows the brazenness of Michael McGrath in in not holding officers to account. If you're not going to hold officers to account in this case, what case will you? Well, I think one of the things that we've also sort of ferreted out in our reporting on this issue in in the past few years was that a lot of times it's difficult to get punishment to stick, you know, that, that the city had a pretty atrocious uh, success rate at keeping these punishments without, because these things often, they almost always go to arbitration. And we were finding through our, our inquiries that, that the union was prevail the police union was prevailing and getting a lot of these punishments either, you know, downgraded or overturned, uh, through the arbitration process. So, you know, maybe the thinking of the city is let's not get into a big legal entanglement. Let's, Let's plead these things out and get something that they're going to be willing to agree to and not challenge through the arbitration process so we can just move on. Yeah, but um, the monitor doesn't agree with right, that. Right. Clearly... You know, that's not how you should do this. I mean, yeah. I think let's let's not forget that these these cases are a huge burden to the taxpayers of the city and and human life is is you know, being lost as a result of this stuff. And so this was a mental health case. She was not a yeah. criminal. She was having a crisis. The city had not trained officers on how to deal with that very well. But this is this is this was wrong on every level. And now it turns out the discipline was wrong, too. Uh, I I'm not surprised Mike McGrath retired a month or so ago. They're going to claim that he he had done his time and it was time to go. I'm sure they knew this was coming out. And we still have yet to see the city's response to this. Right. We don't have the city saying, yes, this is a problem. We're going to fix this. They, they they sent us a can quote, but it really did not acknowledge yeah. McGrath by name. And, and really it was, you know, looking toward reform as opposed to looking backward at what this sort of egregious set of, you know, almost 40 cases that they looked at where the, the monitor found some critical issues with with the punishment that he doled out as the public safety director. And make no mistake. Mike McGrath was Frank Jackson's guy. I mean, there's no missing that this was a guy Frank Jackson stood by over and over again. And, and now his legacy is that he has compromised the consent decree that we all thought would make for a better police force. You're listening to this week in the CLE.
is Cleveland the most stressed out city in America? You know, these surveys come out that say Cleveland's the best this, the worst this. Uh, This is one that seems to have a little bit more bona fide to it. It's based on a lot of studies, although one of the findings is preposterous, which we'll talk about. But Laura Johnston, are we the most stressed out city in America? That is according to a new Wallet Hub report. And um, we got the email just as we were starting to research how to deal with the stress caused by the coronavirus. So this is not related to the coronavirus. These are factors that existed before that. Um, Cleveland ranked first in divorce rates, second for poverty rates uh, in this Wallet Hub report. It also ranked poorly for traffic congestion, which made me scratch my head. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's the <laughs> one where I'm like, we, we have twice as many, twice as much capacity on our roads that we need. And have you been to Orlando? Have you been to Los Angeles? Have you been anywhere right. in the East Coast corridor? We don't have traffic congestion. Right. No, <laughs> I'm with you. I don't know where that came from, except that maybe we complain more about traffic congestion or we think we know what rush hour is because people but have never like lived in Chicago. But. but that's not what it's based on. They based it on all these government reports. And I've right. never seen a report that ranks us high in traffic congestion. I wonder if no. that was an error. Maybe. Inadequate sleep was also an issue. Health and job security, which make a lot more sense. Um, they looked at 180 cities to come up with this list. So, and uh, unfortunately, Akron and Toledo were also on the list of stressed out cities for 12th and 13th, respectively. Apparently, they don't get a lot of sleep there. Detroit was up there. Newark was yeah. up there. I mean, then then some place, I think, in Alabama and Mississippi. I, I don't really get the sense that we're all that stressed out. So this was a bit of a surprise to me. But I know we don't have traffic congestion. <laughs> that's, just, that's completely bogus. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. Well, that'll do it. We didn't get to about a third of the stuff we plan to talk about today, but that's because the first couple of topics were worthy of a deeper discussion. Uh, I'm still, Chris Renesky, stunned by the monitor's report. It's just so strongly worded and disturbing. So um, I hope we continue to chew on it, and I hope we learn some lessons from it. Yeah, me too. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. The audience for this just keeps growing every week, and we appreciate the support we get. This week in the CLE will return tomorrow. Mm-hmm.